This is Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring live talks from the Sydney Opera House. I'm Edwina Throsby, and the episode you're about to hear was recorded at Antidote Festival. 2020 was a chaotic and transformative year. Beginning with the catastrophic bushfires that incinerated any last doubts about the impacts of climate change, to international fury at structural and violent racism, and then on top of everything else, the devastation of a global pandemic that completely collapsed economies, relationships and social norms. But destruction and uncertainty present an opportunity to radically change the way we think. And this panel, called Resetting the World, was a discussion about what we want to rebuild from the wreckage. It's hosted by journalist and broadcaster Tom Tilley. I want you to start by imagining yourself in many years from now. You're sitting down with a, a teenager having a, a big, deep chat. And the subject of the conversation turns to that crazy year of 2020. And how do you explain it to that teenager? Do you start with the bushfires where we saw the whole East Coast on fire? We saw days here at the Opera House where we couldn't even see the Harbour Bridge. You learnt what a P2 mask was, not knowing that you'd soon become a complete expert in face masks as the year wore on. Would you tell them about the moment the Ruby Princess rolled into Circular Quay and thousands of people got off sparking the first wave of COVID-19? And how would you explain the context of the phrase, I can't breathe? And then how would you explain our great national shame, the toilet paper wars? Would you even go there? Would you just write that off as the the darkest chapter in in history? (laughs) Pardon the pun. Uh, Or would you be able to say that it was actually, for all its pain and disruption, an incredible year, a year where a lot of things changed on a much deeper level? Would you be able to say maybe that it was the year that we turned the, the corner on climate change policy, that we took it seriously and we actually turned things around? Would you be able to say that it was the year that we actually got serious about helping marginalised people um, find equity in our society after being downtrodden by so many of our various power structures? Or would you be able to say it was the year that you looked closer to home and really connected with the people that mattered in your life, your friends, your family, your local community? Look, we don't have the postscript for 2020 yet or the decades that follow, but we're going to imagine it today. And I think we should all acknowledge that how you feel about this year depends very much on your personal perspective. It's it's easy to pontificate about how the world could change for the better if you kept your job or if you didn't lose a loved one whose funeral you couldn't attend. But here we are in the Opera House ready to think big, uh, and we have three guests to help us today um, with incredibly interesting backgrounds. First up, we have Rebecca Huntley. Um, She's one of Australia's best social researchers, which makes her one of our best qualified social commentators. Um, She's been writing books and essays for over two decades, and her most recent book focuses on changing the climate change conversation. So, Rebecca Huntley, give her a hand. Uh, our next guest is Gfar Greenaway. He's a whaleman Kamilaroi man. Uh, his mob is from northwest New South Wales. He was the first uh, registered architect in Victoria, uh, and he's founded his own firm and works as an academic at Melbourne Uni as well. Give a hand to Gfar. And we have Jessica Irvine, who's a senior economics writer for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. 
Uh, she's written two books. One involves calculators and weight loss. Um, the other involves economics and zombies. <laughs> Welcome, Jess, to the stage. <laughs> all right, I'll start with the question to you, Rebecca. Given all the problems we faced before 2020, what do you think is the biggest opportunity for a reset, given the year that we've had? Oh, wow. Well, I'm going to pick something that seems small but isn't. <laughs> uh, I think we have an opportunity to reflect on the critical importance of green space within walking distance of our homes. Mm. So imagine what it's like to be in lockdown um, and the only thing that really keeps you sane is walking your dog or if you happen to live somewhere where the only place that you can see somebody, you live on your own, the only place that you can see your friends is in a park or you're struggling with issues around mental health and a bushwalk is the thing that's going to sustain you. So the, I think the one, th the, COVID's done a lot, but I think it has reinforced to Australians the significance of, of the natural environment and proximity to the natural environment. Um, and I can't imagine how we would have gotten through how we've so far without the ability of people to interact with that natural environment. So protecting that natural environment ongoing is critically important. Absolutely. And gee, for that ties in with a lot of your, your thinking about design and, and planning as well. And I think our, our sense of space has changed dramatically this year, um, where I, I think with the amount of international travel people were doing and, and the speed that people were living their lives and moving around, they had to slow down and really focus on their immediate environment. And that, that created a big change of thinking around our, our really intimate space. Yeah, I think we've come to a point in time where we need to build design inclusivity. And not only is that about enabling good design for all people and to consider the broader opportunities to create the betterment through good design practice, but also having a range of different voices which reflects back our community in its full breadth and, and depth, but also anchored in place. So understanding where we're building um, and understanding, importantly, the, the multiplicity and diversities of, of different um, countries which we live in. So the, the over 250 distinct language groups here in Australia are often not reflected through design. So understanding where you're located and revealing those layers of history and memory of place as a way of connecting viscerally in a deeper way. I think that's, that's certainly an opportunity that we can start to explore. And I think COVID has really been a means to reset, but also it is mother nat nature pushing back and saying, we're not doing things well. We need to do it better, and there are certainly ways we can do that. Okay, and with a complete blue sky, utopian kind of approach, if, if you were the Prime Minister as of today, and you had carte blanche to change the world, what, what would you do straight away? I would certainly consider how we can infuse design practice which is sustainable. There's an elder in Melbourne called Annie Dye Kerr, and she says something quite profound. She says, You've, if you care for country, it will in turn care for you. And that's a real strong, sustainable and ecological practice. 
And I think if we start with that premise in all of our moves of how we think about design, it will actually improve our lives and improve the qualities of the places and spaces in which we engage. And you know, importantly too, what we really need to think about is you know, how do we actually bring everyone on the journey with us and build that connectedness and agency and voice for, for the many. Yeah, okay, we'll get deeper into that a little later. Um, Jessica Irvine, it felt like in 2020 when the crisis hit with the pandemic and the resulting lockdowns that all of a sudden we could afford things that we were told before that we couldn't afford, right? So oh, we can't, you know, give unemployed people more than $40 a day to live on because we, that would up, you know, set the economic balance, but all of a sudden we were able to double um, their, their basic income. So what would, what would you like to see change? What opportunities do you see for a reset? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about it this morning. I'm like, and I've been feeling the pressure of this. All we have to do is reset the world this morning, <laughs> on a Sunday morning. Um, but I love that everyone has turned up. I love the sort of person who will turn up for us to try and do that this morning on a Sunday morning. Um, I, but then I sort of took the pressure from, I'm like, so much has already changed this year. The world is completely reset already. If you told me a year ago that it would be a coalition, you know, Liberal National Conservative government who ran up the biggest debts and deficits in our nation's <laughs> history, who unveiled the biggest multi-billion dollar um, welfare program that the nation has ever seen, who boosted JobSeeker, who, you know, in introduced incentives for hiring people, um, and even that it would be Scott Morrison, I would think that is complete fantasy. That has come to pass, and it sort of underscores for me how quickly we can change things if we want to, if we see the immediate need. And in particular, the way that this has fed through our politics, we are now unleashed to do things that we would never thought of before or dreamt possible because we have now bipartisan agreement that if you've got to do stuff for society, it doesn't really matter how much it costs. If you see the immediate need, you can do it. And that whole thing about balancing the budget and debts and deficit turns out to be a bit of a furphy. We don't want to like keep doing it forever if there's no crisis and spend money that doesn't need to be spent, that's not good. But if there's an immediate need, yes, the government can borrow money if we borrow the money and spend it on things that increase the productive capacity of our economy, which avoid um, decades-long scarring from unemployment and get people back to work quickly. Yeah, we can definitely do all that stuff. Um, so if yeah. I was Prime Minister, I'd increase job seeker. if I didn't get that question. But if it was me, and that now remains... So it went from five fifty to 1100 a fortnight. Yeah. Where would you leave it? I think it's come back down to sort of more like seven fifty or yep. something already. Um, I'd like it permanently pegged to the age pension, which increases with wages each year, so we've got to fix that. As to what the dollar amount is, people are sort of still only talking maybe 50 or or $100 extra a, a fortnight, so mm. it's still not going to let you have a lavish lifestyle, <laughs> but it's, gosh, it'll be better than what we were doing before, but some sort of permanent mechanism so that it increases. Yeah. And I just think maybe that, maybe that will still happen. Yeah, well, it, it's clear, and I guess, you know, growing up, you only witness so many crises. Um, you know, I, I saw a little bit of the 90s recession, you know, from a distance as a child, and then we saw the, the GFC, which felt a little bit abstract, and then this has been a real all-inclusive 
um, crisis. And it's been amazing to see the political straitjackets come off, as you say, to have people from the LNP dishing out massive stimuli, um, to see, uh, you know, LNP prime ministers getting on briefly with Labor premiers. Um, so how do you think that will go in the climate change space, Rebecca? Do you think we could see a shift in thinking because also during this year, the political context around climate policy has changed massively. You've seen um, China step up with targets and you've seen Joe Biden come in and moving America back into Paris. Yeah, and e even more important than those two things, what we've seen is an almost race to the top from state and territories of all political persuasions to move towards renewables as well. So, look, one of the, pro <laughs> one of the problems with climate change is that... Uh, it's been an issue now, it's been something in the public mind and at the, in the public discourse for about 30 years. Obviously, it's been happening in various ways before that. And it's particularly in places like Australia and America been allowed to be drawn along quite significant partisan lines. And, you know, the thing about climate change is that unlike, unlike COVID, there aren't a million cues in our day-to-day -day life to tell us it's a crisis. I walk out even though we have, you know, almost zero community transition in New South Wales, I, I mean, I come here, people are wearing masks, I've been asked to, basically, I've been sprayed with sanitizer almost from <laughs> head to toe as I've walked around this building. Um, climate change is a bigger crisis. There are people dying today of climate change, but we don't have those triggers. And we also have decades long in Australia of making this a political football. So we... We face greater challenges with climate change, not just in and of itself, but it challenges the political system in significant ways. Because there's a reason why we have politicians in the system who refuse to engage with the science and the policy and the technology available to us now, because the very people who fund them and will give them jobs out of politics are people in the fossil fuel industry. It just doesn't work the same way with a pandemic. So we're in a very different kind of structural political challenge with climate change, a much harder one to shift in many ways. I think there are messages, there are, you know, to go to Jess's point, we can change quickly if we see the value. And if you think about what governments would need to do to ensure every single job in the fossil fuel industry, um, every single person who works in the fossil fuel industry today in Australia, could be supported either for a, you know, a kind of um, a decent retirement or a new job or to retrain. We're talking about a tiny percent of what this government have managed to do for JobKeeper. You know, and it's a similar kind of transition. So we could actually do that today if we wanted to. If we were really that concerned about those jobs that are disappearing, we could. So there are some, there are some lessons here about in COVID, in the, in the response to COVID, about just how uncreative we've been about working out how we can address climate change in a way that doesn't disadvantage people yeah. whose, whose um, prosperity has been built on the fossil fuel industry. Yeah, I mean, it was a very um, politically successful strategy to make climate change a hip pocket issue yeah. about energy prices or, or losing jobs in Queensland despite, yeah. you know, how relatively few people it employs. But that is often the tension in our, in our political system is those short-term hip pocket issues that people really feel in their day-to-day -day lives versus these 
these long-range problems that we need to deal with as a society. Um, Jifa, do you think the experiences of this year, including the bushfires, where um, part of that conversation was also about bringing in Indigenous land management practices, that we maybe have a kind of circuit breaker on, on that short-term versus long-term political problem? Yeah, there is certainly a tendency to focus on the short-term political cycles rather than, you know, extending time and understanding the, the breadth of thinking required and, and mapping out and having a vision and a plan which often needs to think in 10, 20, 30-year increments. So that, that is certainly something that needs to be addressed. And if we look at some of the, the deep knowledge and wisdom of Indigenous knowledge systems as shaping and grooming the landscape, so there's, there's often this sort of standard trope that you know, this was a sort of a, a verdant, untouched landscape. But the reality is it was manipulated for human habitation for millennia. And so there is great wisdom to read the landscape and to alter and change it in sustainable ways. And so the difference between a, a cold burn and a hot burn, as we can see, is, is dramatic. And so there is certainly a lot of um, knowledge that can be drawn upon in, in developing those land management practices and doing it in a way which is responsive to some of the, the competing forces that we're often grappling with. And I guess really sort of extending that, you know, understanding that that depth of understanding of working with and altering the landscape has to be done in a way where we're not commodifying it, we're not scarring it, we're not doing it in such a way that it actually leaves uh, a legacy which actually is not to our benefit. So those long-term aspirations and, and visions enable us to step through in a quite considered way how we navigate some of the complexity. Yeah, and you were, you were speaking before about uh, changing the way we live our lives on a community level and our own, our own homes. Do you see that, uh, I guess, there's a scalability to that kind of very localised thinking that could solve some of these bigger macro issues? Well, we understand the cultural determinants of health of having a stable and well-considered uh, and designed environment is actually conducive to health outcomes. So what we've seen when, in COVID is that that rush to get out of the house and engage with the lungs of our cities and towns, being you know, our gardens and our parklands and so on, they are critical. And so we can try and use that for you know, built form only, but we're going to lose a lot because they are the social connectors, they are the glues which actually bind community. And so we can see how if we start to think about it in those terms, we can start to scale that up and you have that ripple effect and thinking it, you know, not only in our major metropolises, but in our regional centres, in our, in our remote areas. So thinking of it in a, in a much more holistic way. I think the, the tendency has been to think in, in a very narrow band. And I think... You know, understanding social cohesion is really important. Yeah. Oh, and I just wanted to, to add to that when you were kind of thinking about understanding the multiple layers of history that are, that are located in place. You know, why that's so critical is, it, is to get people to value the green space that's closest to them or the green space that they use, the, the natural environment, is not just about kind of, oh, here are pretty trees or I can cycle through... We value places because they're wrapped in stories and that we understand those stories and that we link those stories that we have to the history there. And so in order to get people to deepen their value about the environment, it also has to... It, we have to write those stories into them and see them as connected. This is why 
understanding First Nations stories around us uh, isn't just a box-ticking exercise. It's a critically important part of what it is to value that space that you have. And I've seen time and time again in the social research I do, um, realising that if somebody loves a place because it was a place that they went fishing with their father and their grandfather and they learnt certain things and they've got stories, they understand why plants grow or they can understand that an invasive species, even if it might look nice, does this to something else. And, and I've seen constantly that people that have those stories and understand that history will fight to protect that space, will work together as a community to protect that space, which is which is why the kind of work you're doing or anybody that does that to kind of embed narratives and stories in place is, is so, it's just, it's vital. So your book is about changing the climate change mm. conversation. Yeah. So do you, do you feel that that is how it, it happens, a connection to a, a space that's very close to you or something very personal that then changes the way you think about more, more macro issues about where we get our energy from or those other yeah. tricky political conversations? Yeah. No, I think so much, so much of the climate change discussion has started with a graph with all of these zigzaggy lines, which is terrifying. And as somebody <laughs> who gave up maths at year 10, you know, I would look at that and go, how is this the beginning of a story about connecting me to something and, yeah. and getting me excited? So a lot of, the, a lot of the, my personal experience in trying to get people who aren't already absolutely on board with climate change but worry about it is you start, what do you love, what do you value? What's at risk and what do you want to keep into the future? So you, you start with that. And it's not to say that the science isn't important, but if you don't start with that, you will not engage well, with it. Well, it's what's in it for me, right? Exactly, but, not in a, but, but importantly, not in a selfish way. Yeah. It is very, very rare that I will meet a focus group where you say, what matters to you? And they will say, oh, the cost of living. If you say, is the cost of living is important to you, they'll go, yes. But if you really open it up and say, what matters to you? What do you love about your community? What gets you up in the morning? People aren't going to say a cheaper grocery bill and that's why I go to Aldi. That's just not, that's just not how it works. So, so much of the climate story now, because we've had 30 years of the science, which people will and will, you know, some people engage with it and some people are, you know, Craig Kelly and they don't engage with it. Um, <laughs> so some people engage, some people don't. We have to flip the conversation around. We have to mm. make it about what do you value? What do you love? How deeply... How, and how deep is that and what are you prepared to fight for so that it stays, in some senses, in, the fu in your future and the future of your children? Jess, in this kind of polarised political space we all inhabit these days, there's so many different ways of reading into the signals of this year. You know, you, you can look at the sort of the way we've changed our lives as we've been discussing as a, as a potential impetus for bigger macro changes or changing attitudes on a personal level. But then... Um, you've got other people who are saying, well, this is the perfect opportunity for a gas-led recovery, um, a very different way of like, seeing the opportunity that, that this disruption has taken. So mm. what's it like for you as an, as an economics writer, I guess, marrying you know, progressive ideas and um, what happens in per personal spheres versus the sort of macro-political reality? Yeah, I've just sort of learned never believe one person. You know, everybody's experience of this crisis has been different. So for me, 
I've had a lovely crisis. I've spent a lot more time at home. I've Marie Kondo'd my closets. I've acquired some <laughs> house plants. Um, and, you know, and I am, uh, you know, my, my hands are lily livid. I sit at home and I tap on my computer and my job has been stable. It's been a fantastic crisis for me and now I've had a lot of time to think about how to reset the world. Um, but I... I know that I'm a statistical aberration and actually for a lot of people when we're not sitting in the opera house and, and having these wonderful philosophical mm. conversations, the year was about they, less, they lost their job, they couldn't afford the grocery bill and if the government had it a stepped in um, to protect their, their income, they would have been facing some really difficult, really, really difficult times. So in terms of whether, you know, this is a crisis where we can pontificate and redesign the world, or if this is actually, has been a real, very real crisis for a lot of Australians that we've probably just are not going to come today, that I won't interact with in my daily life. And actually those fundamental issues of keeping incomes, protecting jobs, uh, the sort of stuff that the Prime Minister talks about ad nauseum is actually really important stuff. So, I mean, I've, I've watched these debates for a couple of decades now and, you know, people are not aware of their own inherent biases and, mm. and then when they see the opposite argument, they often don't see the, the real-life stories behind, you know, the obsession with jobs and growth because that actually delivers the money that people need to live. So... I think I've forgotten the origin of your question. <laughs> well, I guess it's, yeah, it's how you marry those two different experiences yeah. in a I mean, way that takes people with you. Yeah, and I guess the, the thing is we muddle through and sort of whether in terms of whether we need to rip up the system and have a more interventionist state, have a universal basic income, protect everyone, um, you know, move to that degree of government intervention or whether we, you know, we needed to continue with the path which we were on, which was just, you know, individual market forces, everybody look after themselves. Well, um, it's, been, it's been kind of a good time for government it's to been, actually coordinate yeah, responses. And so that's always a pendulum swing. And it's definitely true that if we were, for the last couple of decades, going on a more atomised, individualist, you know, let the market rip, the problems will organically sort themselves out. We have stepped back from that this year, mm. and this has been the year when we've had to say, no, actually, collectively, we have to make decisions that make society better, because if we just let it rip, really bad things can happen to people's lives. Yeah. So this is the pendulum swinging back to a more statist or interventionist, um, collectivist decision-making you know, way of living. Maybe we're going to swing to, you know, maybe there will be that backlash. You know, if you design government programs and they don't work out too well, well or people get money and they waste it. Well, it depends how the recovery works, right? Because for people who've had capital during this crisis, they've actually been able to do really well. But if, if you've been on, on wages where you've lost your job or just absolute flatline wage growth for, you know, years and years, yeah, and that also puts you in a, a very different mindset when you go to the voting booth. Yeah, and did you want to... I, uh, just one of the things that I've noticed, this is anecdotally in my community, but also through research, is that the measures that the government has been able... So there's always this argument that the welfare state stifles creativity, right? And particularly in small business, kind of entrepreneurship. But I actually have found the opposite. I found that because of things like JobKeeper, small business 
and small business around me and small business in the research I do have been able to say, okay, we've got this for a short period of time, maybe six months a year. Mm. How might we need to change our business to survive when this goes? So you've seen quite a lot of creativity, quite a lot, and I'm going to use the word, if anybody uses the word pivot again, I'm going to punch them in the face. Glad we're socially distanced. I'm not pivot. I actually can pivot in this chair, <laughs> but I'm not going to do it. All, so I've actually watched, because of that support, small business, and, and businesses of all kinds say, well, what are we going to do? How are we going to change dramatically? We've even seen... This is being live streamed, you're all here. This is a completely different way to do something and that's happened in a short period of time because people want to continue to do the things they enjoy doing. But if they hadn't had that, if they hadn't had that platform underneath them, they would not have been able to do that kind of creative rethinking about how they did business. And I mean, small business is a really good example, but it's happened in larger businesses as well. So this kind of whole idea that, you know, handouts stifle creativity, they don't. They give you something underneath you to think about how might I do the thing I love and the things that I need to do differently. You can move off the, the sort of base level of the, the hierarchy of needs. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And we've got a question that's come in. We'll start taking a few questions as they sort of flow into the conversation. This one ties into what we were just talking about. Um, what do you think is the best way to start people thinking more long-term and proactive rather than short-term and reactive as we've seen this year? Who wants to take that one? I will um, take that one to start with. So... Um, at the very beginning of the crisis, and it still happens, a lot of people had been saying, again, in focus groups and around me, saying, I can't concentrate. You know, I'm kind of doom-scrolling and, and I, can't, I think that, you know, I'm going to read a novel and I don't, or I'm going to start writing the great Australian novel and I can't. Um, so at times of extreme crisis, whether it be environmental or, or a pandemic, our, our brains go into that kind of fight or flight mode and we can't concentrate. And, and, as, and it, weirdly, it's not a kind of a short burst of anxiety. It was an unknown mm. level of anxiety. And what that does, it suppresses our systems thinking, which we are going to need to get through a crisis. So ironically, our system thinking isn't working very well, but we need it more than ever. So I think that one of the things that we do need and one of the things that we've seen... Um, some really terrific leadership around the world is, is that long-term thinking, is thinking, well, I'm not just going to do something particularly reactive. I'm going to think about how we might react to a crisis, but in a way that has a long tail of benefit for our society. And you've seen it particularly in the area of um, renewable energy. I went into the year thinking... Governments of all kinds would just jettison their climate change. Gov not just governments, but organisations would jettison their climate change plans to deal with the pandemic. But in many cases, it's been the opposite. Big organisations, governments have said, we need to grow back better through this crisis and deal with some things that we know will be there once the vaccine is out there to help us do things mm. better. And so the more models we have of that kind of leadership the better we're going to be as a society and the better we are to train our own brains to realise that we don't always have to be reactive, we have to think long-term. Um, Jeeva, there's actually an interesting question that sort of flows on um, from this to you. How can Indigenous thinking inform economic management? That's a, that's a tough question, I think. Well, it comes back to, to basics, really. 
you know, when it comes to economics, I'm certainly not economically inclined and often I'll do things pro bono and, and I often won't make money on projects, but it, it really, the essence of it is coming back to the values that underpin what you do and why you do it. And so that ethical and philosophical positioning trumps economics is, is the way I see it. And I think it's been demonstrated in the COVID environment is if we need to spend money, we can. It's priorities that matter. Mm. And ultimately, when we, we think about how we've sort of um, navigated the, the experiences we've had this year is, you know, money is cheap at the moment. So if you're ever going to invest in the community and the society in which you live in, now is the time. And so if we start to think about, you know, that connection and correlation with Indigenous culture is we can start to now enable First Nations people some level of self-determination backed by resources which enable them to do it. Because what's tended to happen in the past is the recurrent funding, the resourcing has been minimal, uh, if not non-existent. So why don't we then start to support some of these fantastic endeavours? And often they, they come out as pilot projects and then they get dropped after they've proven to be successful. So how do you build um, capability and continuity in some of the fantastic initiatives that are often driven by First Nations people across Australia? So they're the sort of ways in which I would frame where the opportunity lies. And in amongst the pandemic, we also had the explosion of the Black Lives Matter movement this year. And it was hard to know whether that was just, um, the timing was almost coincidental or whether one, one fed the other as the whole of society felt like we were all connected to these singular moments and the death of George Floyd, you know, on the streets of America had a big flow on effect here in Australia as well. What was it like for you watching that? And do you think that's changed the conversation at all about um, equity in Australia for Indigenous people? Well, firstly, for me, it's been a reckoning of history. It's been a moment of pause and contemplation to understand what the, pro the colonial project has actually done and how it actually has been uh, complicit in the way in which it's intersected with Indigenous peoples around the globe. And we know there still is systemic racism and there's some major challenges that communities face uh, across the globe. And we are not out of the woods yet on that because there's still so much work to be done. But also in the Australian context, there's something that we need to reflect on as well. How have we in fact embraced the challenges of what dispossession and colonisation has done for First Nations people here? And you know, if I think back to my late father, Bert Groves, you know, he was a civil rights campaigner from the 1920s onwards. He was there in the National Day of Mourning in 38. He signed up as a soldier in the Second World War. He lobbied for a decade in the 67 referendum without being counted in the census as a citizen of his own nation. So you can see there, there's still in, in recent and living memory some residual effects of some of the challenges that we've faced. But the way I, I seek to sort of think about it is to switch it in terms of celebration. What we've, you know, it's not 240 years lost, it's 67,000 years gained. So when we start to change the language, it provides opportunity and it's something where we can actually engage with our shared humanity and connections. There's much more things that bind us than separate us. So how do you simultaneously um, apply a more honest, critical lens to 
colonialism and the the problems that it created and the social inequities that it created while still growing your society on that basic framework, its legal system, its economic systems, its political systems? It starts with truth-telling and building visibility and honestly engaging with some of the difficult truths. And so, you know, as an architect, we're often confronted with how do we give expression to culture manifested through the built environment? And in many respects, what we've seen in the past is a very cliched, stereotypical, sort of standard trope type approach of, you know, indigenous equals primitivism or set back in time. But indigenous culture is a lived culture, Mm. constantly changing, adapting and evolving. And so what we seek to do is move beyond the sort of surface treatment and the sort of museumization of culture or the muralization of culture to actually embed it within the DNA of the design thinking. And what that does is it provides design inspiration and really provides a a mechanism to engage deeply with place, with story, revealing some of those layers of history and memory, and then authentically connecting to place. As we mediate everything through technology, what people are crying out for is that authentic connection to who they are and where they are. We don't need to import all this stuff from overseas. We've got it all here. So this is where the opportunity really is to engage with the the multiplicity and the expression of embracing all of who we are. Yeah, well, we have, I guess, seen the importance of producing things locally and not being dependent on international, you know, um, travel and, and, you know, trade, for example. So is that that an exciting thing for you? it's, It's a fantastic way to engage with the local, to build connection, to build up capabilities and, and resources and, and you know, reciprocal relationships too. So the, the relational model rather than the transactional model I think is really important. What we're up against there is the fact that you know, in a global economy, some things were cheaper from overseas and you know, when you ran the numbers, that's how it stacked up. It was better to get it from somewhere else. So how do we, maybe you have an answer on this, Jess, how do we properly understand the the true values of those supply chains and what they offer to us as a society so we can get this balance right. Yeah, I mean, what's amazing is that COVID has taught us you can close international borders uh, and stop people coming here and we can still, we still have an economy because actually, you know, the economy is us. Um, About 70% of the economy is the stuff, the goods and services we sell each other in Australia. Um, There has been this phenomenon of globalisation, which has given us access and the ability to import um, very cheap, very good quality products from all over the world, which has actually raised our living standards maybe not so much for the people who were making making them, Mm. although there's been more attention lately um, on on the negative consequences for for the countries of origins. Um, But that sense that the economy is us um, and people sometimes sort of create a dichotomy between the sorts of things we're talking about and the economy, or we've got to grow the economy. Um, But if anything, I've found COVID is, is that reset for me to pick it apart and go, well, if you shut the, you essentially shut down the economy. You don't let people go out and buy things from each other. You tell everyone to sit at home and then you restart it. What is, what is the economy? It's our ability to sort of wake up, uh, do something that we're good at and earn an income for, 
hopefully, um, then use that money to go buy something from somebody else who's good at doing that. Um, and it is a wonderful, it's, it's a community thing. Economies are communities. Yeah. Um, that what else could it be? Money, isn't a, it, money is just a piece of paper. Our systems are about our interactions with other human beings, what we think is a fair wage, what we think is a fair price. Um, so I sort of think there is that room to incorporate more of a relational aspect, you know, and a moral aspect, because this idea that the economy was anything other than individuals acting according to values and morals, was, that was never the case. Um, and this has sort of exposed that for us all to see. Um, and so I, you know, hopefully that does, I mean, I just sort of think of, there's a lady at my gym who runs a coffee shop and that shut down during COVID um, and she was devastated. And then she sort of kept it alive a little bit and, you know, through gumption and, you know, I sound like I'm now a small business advocate, but I am, you know, for the ability for people to go and produce things and sell them to other people. I find it fascinating and wonderful and I hope it all comes back and, geez, it was terrible when we shut it all down. Um, so there is a vibrancy, but that needs to be coupled with a bit more morality and, and this sort of values-based conversation. Yeah, so, I'm... That's some really big concepts. There. Yeah, bring, there. bringing the, the 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 social values and the personal values into that sort of economic value. I remember if I studied uni in my first year, and actually, the way they explained it was it was about sharing resources. Yep. That's what economics is about. So of course, all those personal factors are are really important. There's a there's a question that sort of. Um, tangents from this, and um, whoever asked it, thank you, I wanted to ask this one myself. Um, how do we transition people's mindsets away from unbridled growth towards a more sustainable mindset? Anyone can jump in on that one. Yeah, I mean, by sort of, we actually, we don't need the growth if the growth is just, to, you know, fed by, you know, a lot of our growth was just to feed a growing population. That's why we were growing. Actually, for a long time, we've sort of lived with our wages not going too much above inflation. We've sort of parked ourselves at a certain standard of living, um, which is a pretty good standard of yeah. living. Um, we have, you know, through the average wages, we have the ability to command resources um, that we need to fulfil our basic needs and wants. So... We, we are in a, in a good place in Australia and there does need to be more of a focus on, therefore, well, if that's the average, what's happening to the people who, don't, who are not at the average? And I think that is a conversation we can have if we, talk, if we are now talking about job seeker and, you know, to sort of say we have locked in a really good living standard on average. Um, we don't need to be obsessed with economic growth just to lift everyone, now is the time to refocus on how, how that is distributed. Yeah, Rebecca, do you think it's maybe a little bit fanciful to think that this crisis is going to push us towards more economic equity um, because a, a lot of, you know, more vulnerable people have actually done it tougher during this time? Uh, look, I think the crisis is definitely... Uh, highlighted the strengths and weaknesses of our economy and our society. Um, some of that is being acknowledged in terms of um, that the poorer you are, the less social capital you have around you, the more insecure your job is, um, 
that the less likely you were to have a, a nice COVID-19 period baking banana bread and putting it on Instagram. <laughs> um, so that's been acknowledged, but I don't know if it's quite been addressed in the long term by a lot of governments. So, I mean, recently this week, the Victorian government made a really... They had a budget and made a significant commitment to insecure work, around supporting insecure workers. Because when COVID-19 happened, and I was at, at the last real public event I did before COVID-19 at ANU, and we were started to talk about essential workers and how important essential workers are, and we tend to think very much of nurses and doctors. But really some of the most essential workers in our system at the moment are people who clean, people who clean childcare centres and aged care centres and hospitals. And in general, they are um, often they're women, they're, not, they're women from migrant communities, uh, migrant backgrounds, and pretty badly paid without great conditions. Mm. So we can, make, we, can, we can make all these kind of inspiring you know, um, comments about essential workers and how great they are and politicians can make pronouncements, but until we start to pay um, the kinds of people who clean our public spaces well, make sure that they're free from um, discrimination and make sure they can do things like effectively self-isolate for two weeks without their entire... Well, we're seeing, like, the, the, the starts of that now, you know, yeah. as Victoria redesigns its hotel quarantine, yeah. they're like, how do we make sure we pay these people enough so they don't go and work somewhere That's else right. in a pizza shop or whatever That's it right. is? So do you think maybe we can take those, those kernels of development in those labour reforms and, you know, implement them more widely? No, I think, I think we could. They're an opportunity, but there's big structural changes that are required, and will we just forget the moment, you know, if the, if the, if the virus is, you know, if we get a vaccine, will we forget about those kinds of questions? Yeah, the disparities still exist. Yeah. They are entrenched. So we actually have to think in a much more systemic way to break down some of those barriers so as we open up those um, opportunities to, to build resilience mm. and to bring people up as well. Because, you know, those who are doing well will always do well in many respects. It's actually those who are uh, struggling and are engaging with some of those, you know, systems which have been put in place to maintain the wealth of the wealthy. So trying to build those capacities and, and start to extend and share in the wealth because you know, we live in a prosperous society. There, there is no two ways about that. So to be able to engage with that. So you know, similarly in Victoria, we've just bankrolled to the tune of over $5 billion social housing. So that's where stimulus and using the, the clout of government can actually be a powerful legacy piece on the back of, of so, something like this pandemic. Yeah, and that's a great example because in both of your answers was, well, the, the small micro-level changes are, are great, but you're talking about systemic changes, but it, how do you bring one to the other? How do you implement structural change when, you know, there's so many different lived experiences, there's the political straitjackets that thankfully have been loosened a little bit this year. How, how do we sort of take the micro sort of changes and reforms and help that build towards a big structural change? Well, you need leadership and stamina in leadership and consistency in leadership and often on some of these questions a bit of bipartisanism to be able to make those kinds of changes and push them through. And they're not going to be pushed through over 12 months and there's a whole... Um, it, uh, 
yeah, just stamina and persistence. And values. It should be driven by, by values. Well, values. That's what it comes back to. What's important to us? Yeah. You know, is it important to perpetually make money to the detriment of others or is it actually about sharing in and the mutual benefit of the largesse of, of what we're able to create within a society like Australia? That's what it comes back to to me. Did it give you hope this year that we finally learnt that other things can trump the economy? So in the case of the pandemic, it was like, well, if we're not healthy... Yeah, what have we, you got? we don't have an economy. So do you think that has been a bit of a light bulb moment? Oh, 100%. And I've experienced this on a personal level with family where we've had some, some grief and, and some uh, health issues. And what does it come back to? That, that's the essence, really, isn't it? It's coming back to, to family. And if you've got a family and you've got health, everything else um, you know, folds out from that. So un unless you have that as a stable base, then everything becomes much harder in many respects. But also just remembering that your job and your income can be an important determination determinant oh, yeah. of health. So that's sort of the flip side of it. We've sort of protected our immediate physical health, but also, you know, keeping the jobs and keeping the income, which is what we have done mm. to make sure that we don't leave people behind and, and deteriorate their health outcomes mm. because they've been jobless, which is not counter to anything you guys were just saying. But just No, and there was, look, I mean, in so many ways, we didn't have the death toll and the kind of the toll of other countries. So I always felt that that kept this tension in the, in the public debate between to what extent do we protect lives through lockdown or to what extent are lives being already uh, challenged by lockdown, whether it be mental health issues or being able to keep a job. Like, how, how do those two tensions exist? And at the beginning of COVID, I thought what was really interesting, because I was involved in lots of research and looked at the many of people's responses to it, I thought at this stage, because it was before there was that second wave in Melbourne. At the moment, what we're asking people to do, because most people didn't think they were going to get it, and even if they got it, that they weren't going to die, but they were very worried about people who were either immune-compromised or older mm. people getting it. So what we were asking, what our leaders were asking Australians to do is, I need you to bring about wholesale behavioural change, not because you're going to get sick, but somebody else's grandmother might die. And that is really testing the ability for our community to come together and do something. Mm. And we were able to do it for a short period of time. I did worry, given the kinds of undercurrents of, you know, social and economic, dis you know, um, uh, inequality, whether people could sustain that long term. Thank God we haven't had it go quite badly. Although Norman Swan did say to me, I did a panel with him, where I said, oh, we're in the middle of COVID, and he said, we don't know when the end is going to be. We could be at the beginning of COVID, which is very annoying oh, he's such that a he said that. So always such a downer. <laughs> I that can't guy. do his accent. And I'm, look, I'm, I'm very much hoping that we are still in the middle and not at the beginning. Um, but yeah, I did really worry. I kind of th thought this, we are on a knife edge about the extent to which we're prepared to sacrifice to keep other people that we don't know safe, which is what it was for quite some time. Um, Rebecca... One of our audience members wants to know what you would do if you were Prime Minister today and you had carte blanche. <laughs> um, I would take the lead of almost all of the state and territory governments and throw a lot of money towards um, renewable energy because this is not... This is, it's actually now the, a much cheaper form of energy 
than coal and gas. I would then... Does it need, does it need the subsidy if it's so competitive? No, well, it does for a while because there's, there's a lot of unevenness and gaps, but we can move that very quickly. I would have a similar kind of job keeper, job seeker um, uh, package for everybody in currently being employed by the fossil fuel industry to be able to make sure that they have vibrant communities and um, lifelong... Um, uh, prosperity, and I would also uh, put a lot of money into the tertiary education sector, which has been completely and utterly decimated. It's the one part of our economy that has been ignored and um, significantly devalued because the solutions to the problems we face are not going to be generated necessarily by Google. They're going to be generated by people who are paid to research and think and teach others, um, and that's those are the... You said one, but they're all actually <laughs> all, all interrelated. That's what I'd do. And then I'd throw a big party <laughs> yeah. at the lodge <laughs> to Very celebrate nice. my great decision-making. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm not completely selfless. Well, yeah, you need some personal incentives as well. You can't yeah. just be saving the planet without a bit of celebration. And you're all invited. There you go. <laughs> right. With um, social distancing, mate. Hopefully not. No. Um, Jessica, it's going to be an interesting time for Australia. It already has been. We've been the lucky country once again. Somehow it, f it feels by just virtue of, you know... Isolation. Proximity, distance, <laughs> isolation. But maybe there's, maybe there's something else. Maybe it's about us. I don't know. But we could potentially have a real boom time over the next few years. We've ridden out this, this crisis economically really well. Um, we have a, a lot to offer. How do you see the next few years going for Australia? And do you think in that conversation you're having with a teenager in 20 years, you're like, well, that's when the, that's when the, the new gold rush started. That's when Australia had its moment. Yeah, you sound very optimistic there. I'm Sorry, not sure that I, I apologise. I share the... I was reading some ABS stats that said something like 70% of the jobs lost during COVID are back. Fantastic. It might have actually been a press release from the Treasurer. And I thought, that means we've still lost 30% of the jobs that we had. We haven't got them back yet. And our economy is pretty much sort of opening it except for international borders, you know, we're still reopening. I think there might be some long-tail consequences from the seismic event for our economy that we won't bounce back from too quickly. Uh, you know, the jobless rate hasn't gone up as much as we thought, but it is still highly elevated. We know that jobs once lost, it's sort of a ticking time bomb to get people back to work, because if you don't, they can be unemployed for a very long time. And it's going to shake out, you know, some of the people whose skills were sort of not quite as valued in the modern economy, you know, they were sort of a bit outdated. They will never get their jobs back. And that is mm. why I'm so focused on Job Seeker, because there has been permanent long-term change to the way we buy and sell products. Um, and there's some people who are going to be jobless probably for the rest of their working lives. Um, and whether we've now got the gumption to keep going with more stimulus, um, when the crisis, immediate crisis has passed, there is less, you know, we know we're maybe freer in spending money and investing government money, but without that sort of massive threat, if we will continue to sort of do the infrastructure investment and the investment in higher ed or whatever it is, that remains to be seen what degree we snap back to a degree of austerity, you know. And I think Job Seeker is that test as to, you know, yes, we had a Conservative government that took the economy in its arms and held us all, um, 
are we going to be dumped back down? Are they going to keep doing that? So that's why I see job seekers, that real litmus test as to whether, you know, we embrace those sort of interventionist policies, but only for a time. And as soon as we get a vaccine, everyone's back on their asses um, looking after themselves. So whether we snap back to something, you know, that is a boom time, I'm not sure. I think, you know, we'll have this elation of having beat the virus, get out of lockdown, and then still find that there's a lot of empty shops on the main street. There's a lot of businesses that may have been kept alive with JobKeeper that are still as yet to go out of business. So I think it will be pretty tricky. The good news is we've got lots of money. The Reserve Bank has just decided it can print uh, as much <laughs> money as it needs. So even if well, Scott yeah. Morrison doesn't want to cradle us in his arms, um, Phil Lowe will <laughs> at the Reserve Bank. So there's reasons to be positive, but it might not be that snack. snack and may back. well sow the seeds for the next crisis. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, <laughs> we'll have more to talk about. <laughs> absolutely. Um, well, we are out of time. Um, it's been a fascinating discussion, so thank you so much. Um, Jessica Irvine, Jeffa Greveway, Greenaway, and Rebecca Huntley. Thank you so much, guys, and thank you so much for coming in. And if you've watched this from home, thank you so much for joining us and submitting your questions. Have a great day at the Antidote Festival.